The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. We live in the time in between. In the time in between Jesus' resurrection and our own. So for you and I, for all of Christ's promises, we live in an age of now, but not yet. Christ's promises, they are true now, but also not yet do we get to enjoy all the benefits of what it will be like when they come to full fruition. We live in this time in between. And so you and I, the church of the time in between, we're a waiting church, a church that asks itself, how long? How long, Lord, till you come back? So an important question for you and I, this church of the time in between is, well, how should we wait? What should we be about as we're waiting for Jesus to come back? That's a question that's been on the mind of the church from its very beginning. You know, in the context of our readings for today, Jesus' disciples were asking him, how will we know when the end's going to come? How will we know when you're going to come back, Jesus? And he said, oh, there's going to be signs, but the day and the hour is unknown. You need to be ready, watchful at any time. And then he tells them that the way he wants his church to wait is to let them live faithfully. And he tells them the story of the bags of gold. Marianne Moore was the poet. I've said this before. I love her expression about imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Because that's what Jesus' parables are. He creates imaginary gardens for you and I to find real toads that teach us about the way we are to live and about life in this time in between. And in this particular imaginary garden that we call the parable of the bags of gold, Jesus is intending to teach us about what to do in this time while we wait. Now, if you're like me, maybe you have heard this this, uh, parable before called the parable of the talents. That's the way it was always called when I was growing up, the parable of the talents. Uh, the, uh, that's the way that the translators of the Bible often translated this word. But the problem is, is that I think sometimes it can lead to a little bit of misunderstanding. When you hear the word talent, usually what you're thinking of is somebody who's gifted in something, right? Like if someone's musically talented. Well, that word talent in English comes from this parable. It means the idea of someone who is given a great gift, Right? But I wonder how many of us, when we hear the word talent in the parable, are really thinking unit of measurement. Because that's what this word means, right? It means something that weighs 50 to 60 pounds. That was the unit of measurement. And because it was a unit of measurement, it could also be a unit of, of money, a monetary unit. So in the first century Palestine, if they talked about a talent of gold, that meant 50 to 60 pounds of gold, which then they would have said was equivalent to 6,000 days wages or 20 years worth of work. What's that today? 50 pounds of gold, 20 years worth of wages, let's call it a million and a half dollars. So that's what we should be thinking when we hear the word talent. And so when the NIV translated it for this version of the Bible, they called it bags of gold. Maybe that communicates really well. But that certainly is what the audience in Jesus' day heard when he began telling them this imaginary garden that he wanted them to find some real toads in it, right? 
They heard bags of gold. And so Jesus tells a story about a master who's got some servants. And to one servant, he gives five talents or five bags of gold. To one, two, and to one, one. And then there's that first word we have to account for, servant. The Greek word there is doulos. Um, that word can mean either servant or it can mean slave. It really is, the context is determining there. And here, as you heard that story that Jesus told, you can tell the context, right? These were men whose future and whose present were completely in the hands of their master. Uh, these were people who were wholly owned by their master. But immediately, though, we find out what their relationship with him is like. Even though they're wholly owned, they're also hugely trusted. Right, think about it. The first guy comes in and the master entrusts him with five to seven million dollars worth of money. The second one comes in and he's entrusted with three million dollars. The last one comes in and entrusted with a million and a half dollars. And then the master says, you guys take care of this. I'm going to go away for a long time, handle this money without supervision. We'll talk about it when I get back. They may have been wholly owned, but they were wholly trusted as well. All right, so Jesus is talking about you and I. Remember, he's telling this story to his disciples, to the church of the time in between. And what he's reminding us of is that our relationship with him is one that we are wholly owned servants because he bought us with blood. We completely belong to our master Jesus. But this is a relationship, though, in which he is highly trusting and gifting for us, right? Now, in this imaginary garden Jesus is constructing here, it's really easy to see that the point, the reason he gave these bags of gold to the servants was not capital preservation. This was not about keeping the money safe. It was about putting the money to work, doing business with it, creating a return for the master. You could tell that because the first two servants, they understood the assignment. They went out, they got to work immediately, and the one with five gave gained five more, the one with two gained two more. But the third servant was different. Even the words in the story, he departed, dug a hole in the ground, buried the gold. After a long time, the master comes back to settle accounts. So what's the real toad that Jesus intends us to find inside of this imaginary garden? Well, you know, the best thing about parables is you can tell what Jesus means by looking at the way he constructed the garden. Sometimes we look at this and we think the story is about three servants, but it, it really isn't about three servants. The story is about two kinds of servants, not three. You can tell that because the first two servants are just one kind. Jesus' words to them or the master's words to them are exactly identical. Their description of what they did, exactly identical the, word, the master reserves most of his words, and in fact, most of the words of the entire parable are to deal with the, the third servant, right? There's just two kinds of servants, Jesus is saying. And the difference between them is not the quantity that they return to the master, as you can see by the fact that uh, the first and second servant, they get the same exact reward. The difference cannot mean that the first two were more faithful than the third servant, Jesus isn't commending them on their, uh, on their level of faithfulness as opposed to the one-talent guy. No, what made the third servant different was that he wasn't faithful at all. 
It's not that he did less than the other two. It's that he did nothing. And in fact, in the words that he speaks, you can tell that he's afraid of his master, that he loathes his master. With the words he speaks, you can tell this is a broken relationship. He says, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. That's a man who fears and loathes his master, and he isn't afraid to say it. But maybe the question for us as we explore this imaginary garden is, was that actually true, what he said? Is it actually true, the accusations that he made? Was the master really a harsh man who reaped where he didn't sow? A master who invokes fear and demands acts of obligation? Well, honestly, when you first read through the parable, it kind of feels like that, right? Because he's like, oh yeah, you, you know I'm a harsh man that scatters or that's, that uh, reaps where he doesn't sow? Well, then you should put your money on, on deposit with the banker so I could have gotten interest. It sounds a little bit like he's accepting that designation. Was this master a harsh man? Or could it be that he was just assuming this man's word true for the sake of the argument so that he could show just how wicked and lazy this servant was. I think there's four reasons why when we're looking at this story, we should consider that the words of this third servant are actually just false and that the, the master is just assuming them true for the sake of the argument to show how wicked this man is. Four reasons, I think. First reason is when Jesus starts by telling this story, in the introduction, he gives us no indication that this master is anything other than a normal, kind, fair master, right? And then number two, you can take a look at the way in which he interacts with the first two servants, or actually all three of the servants, right? He trusts them with so much of his wealth. I mean, this was a man who entrusted five to seven million dollars, three million dollars, one and a half million dollars to these men. It doesn't sound like a harsh man. Talk about trusting. Here, take five million dollars and I'll come back in a few years and just let me know how it goes. Does your boss do that? Then there's a line in there where he also says he gave it according to their ability. That's the point that the Bible's making here. Jesus, as he builds this garden, he says that these men weren't dumped these resources who had no idea what to do with them. He said the reason they received different amounts is that the master knew what each one was capable of managing. Again, it doesn't sound like a harsh master or someone who makes onerous demands. And then you look at the way he responds to the two guys that were faithful. He rewards them generously, invites them to come and share in their master's happiness. And then finally, we remember, Jesus is the one telling the story to his disciples, a story in which Jesus is the master, right? The disciples at this point in their ministry, they had had a long time to get to know Jesus, and they knew that he was not a harsh master. They knew he was not one who did things like this. I mean, the conclusion that you have to come to is that this man's words were false and his lack of even a modicum of activity proved it. So instead, what the master did was he accepted it as true for the sake of the argument and showed this servant to be just as wicked and lazy as he could be. Oh, really? If you thought I was a harsh man, well, then wouldn't you have put the money on deposit 
But in fact, you didn't do that, did you? That's how wicked and lazy you are. These words, these charges, they're false. And you proved it with your life. There's just two kinds of servants. One is faithful and the other is not. The third servant, he was just working off of fear and obligation. He was no servant of the master at all. So the master treated him as such. He threw him outside into the darkness. Okay, so what's the toad? What are we going to find here? What does Jesus want us to know? i got to tell you, I've sat through a lot of sermons on this text that made it all about stewardship, about us giving more of our time, talents, efforts, and money to God. God's given you these many talents, and he wants, a, he wants you to work really hard and give some money back to him. I'm not sure that that's the point. Uh, that's, I think, not at all the point here. The point here is that there's two kinds of servants, ones that are faithful and ones that aren't. As the world waits for the Son of God to return in glory, there are two kinds of people. The first kind are those who receive God's gift with joy, and a result of God's mercy, they faithfully serve God and their neighbor. Then there's the group that spurns the gift of God and think that uh, any interaction they have with the divine is simply giving back something that they never asked for or even wanted in the first place. The weight of the first group is going to end in enjoyment and partaking in their master's happiness. The end of their waiting of the second group is going to end outside in the teeth-gnashing darkness. You know, the other two readings we had for this morning really point out what Jesus is getting at here. Right, That first reading from Isaiah where Israel, unbelieving Israel, was offering God sacrifices out of fear and obligation and God says, you can keep them. I don't want anything to do with those. But our second reading from Paul in Romans, he tells us the point of this parable. Because here it is. Um, This isn't a message that God says he wants better stewardship of you, of your time or your money or your talents. Here's the truth. God wants all of you. All of it. Every bit of it. Because you are wholly owned. Wholly owned servants of your master. He bought you with blood. So he doesn't want a little more, or a little better, or a little harder. He wants it all. But even though we're wholly owned servants of the master, here's the difference. We never forget who our master is. This is the master who rescued us at the cross. This is the master who forgives our wickedness and remembers our guilt no more. This is the master who entrusts us with gifts and calls on us to share in his happiness. Those first two servants, they were not working out of fear or obligation at all. They knew who their master was. And they threw their hearts and lives into the work and they joyfully and fully got after the job the master had given them. And then they got to say, Master, look, look, here's more. Paul says what you and I are is we're living sacrifices. That's what it means when God says he wants it all. Living sacrifices. Now, that's a kind of an oxymoron because sacrifices, they all end up being dead, right? Paul here says you and I are a glorious oxymoron. We're sacrifices that keep living. Sacrifices that are holy, set apart, and consecrated for God. Sacrifices who keep living and pleasing our God and Savior. 
God doesn't want a little bit more from us. He wants us to recognize who he is and recognize who we are. Holy owned servants of the best master we could ever hope for. And then he wants us to live our lives consecrated, set apart in service for him. We will not offer him more. We will not offer him better. We give him everything. God grant it. Amen. Amen.